0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: G'day, welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. Better make it quick. It's the Wednesday edition where Bree, our researcher and producer here, goes, You know what, this episode's pretty good. We should have another listen to that. And then we uh, have a look back. We grab a couple of bits and go there you go. What do you reckon? Why don't you go back and listen to the full thing? 2020 is when we spoke with Hugh Van Uh, He is the founder of the Resilience Project as an educator, an author, a keynote speaker, a father, a husband, and he's got a great podcast called The Imperfects. Hugh's from Melbourne, and once he
0: graduated from high school, went to university and studied education there. I did, yeah. yeah. I studied it well straight out of university. I did something because I was told by a career person I should do neuropsychophysiology.
1: What is that? that?
0: Yeah, I know. I couldn't even spell it, so I was never going to do too well. But I did neuropsychophysiology, and I just wanted to be a school teacher. And I was sitting there going, "Why? What am I doing this for? I want to be a school teacher." So
1: you're seventeen years old, and someone says, "I want you to do neuros. You would be a great neuropsychophysiologist.
0: That's what you should do." And you went, "Okay," because I do what grown ups tell me. I guess so. I was, I had this scholarship at the Victorian Institute of Sport, and part of that, which was a great program, but part of that, they gave you a career person, and I remember saying, "Oh, would like to be a primary school teacher," and they said, "Yeah, well, you can always do that one day, but you've got the marks to get into neuropsychophysiology. You should do that, and then if you don't like it, then you can go to primary school teaching." And part of me went, "I don't think I like that," but okay, and then did it, and I did two years, and I hated it, and I, I just wanted to do teaching, and so. Yeah, I went into teaching. So I, it took me a while to get into teaching, but about three or four years out of school, I found primary school teaching and I loved it. Like I just loved everything about it. It was very special. What was your sport? Uh, cricket. I played cricket, yeah, and played up until a couple of years ago, and I should have retired a long time ago, but it's quite an addictive
1: Ah, Oh, no. My youngest brother, he plays, I think he's got like three teams that he plays in. He plays a warehouse <laughs> game. He plays an indoor game. Yeah. He used to live in a share house. The share house is still in the family of family of friends, I should say. Um, they yeah. have a full-size cricket pitch in the backyard up in Queensland and <laughs> every, every Friday with nets and everything. It's in the back of a Queensland mate. It's perfect, and every Friday, well, all the boys come around and they they have a hit every Friday for I years. I love that.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's a, just it gets under your skin cricket, and you just. I don't know, it becomes your identity and you say to people, I'm a cricketer, even though I was not playing at the elite level. So I didn't know how to stop playing. So like, if I stop playing, what do I tell people I do on the weekend? I don't know. I, so I played for way too long, but loved loved every bit of it. But yeah, primary school teaching is what I studied and, and loved. What was, very, it about,
1: what was it about primary school teaching? Because that comes with its own set of challenges. What was it about yeah, relating to uh, little was, kids?
0: When I graduated, I became a... Well, actually, I'm not sure I've said this before. Anyway, but I remember my first lecture at Deakin University in Melbourne, there was 280 people in the course and my first lecture were in this huge room and I counted five males and 275 females. I remember going, oh my gosh, jackpot. <laughs> this is going to be a must." But that's not the thing I loved about primary school teaching that everyone doing it was a female. But certainly as a 22-year-old, that was very exciting. But then when I got into teaching, it was I don't know, I I would always teach grade fours, fives and sixes. That was I always ended up in that age group, 10 to 12s. And I love that stage of life where they still respect you, but you don't have to say anything, but they just respect the fact that you're a teacher, but they do have a bit of independent thinking. They make you laugh a lot with just outrageous questions and thoughts, but they love the more vulnerable you are as a teacher, the more honest you are with how you're going and you admit you don't know everything and the better response you'd get from them on all levels, not just education-wise, but emotionally and social development. When you were honest with your struggles, I just love that. I absolutely loved it and miss it. Like I I now go to every – we've been to 1,500 schools across the country, but I don't get that ongoing relationship with the kids. It's like we're there for a little bit, then we're gone. So I I do miss that. I remember my fondest memory, almost challenging memory, was when I took sex ed for – I taught at a girls' school straight out of uni. And the reason I did that was my sister had anorexia and this mental illness ravaged her as a kid, like it was just brutal. And for some strange reason, I thought, I'm going to go to a girl's school and I'm going to teach there because I'll be able to stop them getting anorexia. Right. <laughs> you know, which is just, I don't know how I thought I was going to do that. But I just had this feeling like, I want to go and teach girls because if I get them at a young age, I can prevent them yeah. getting anorexia or any mental illness and I can stop their families going through what our family went through with my sister. So I ended up at a girl's school, but I remember that, teacher I was teaching with said right you can take both the grade five classes for sex ed and I said all oh, right okay and I was 24 at the time and I had 30 10 year old girls and I developed this thing called the question box where if there's a question that you're embarrassed to ask stick in the question box I'll read it out and first week it was I actually researched the question so I didn't look like an idiot but first week they were so easy I didn't bother researching them for the second week and the second week I just sat down and went, right it goes question time And I've pulled these questions out of the box. They were the most, (laughs) the first question, (laughs) the first question was, what is a wet dream? And I went, oh God, geez, I didn't see that one coming. And so (laughs) I said, well, and I could see them all like going, yeah, what is that? I don't, I haven't heard of that before. And I said, okay, so it's a dream that a man would have that's, it's a nice dream and they kind of like it. So it's a nice, it is a nice dream that a man has. And I saw them and they were like, all right. And the girl said, why is it called a wet dream? <laughs> so I'm going. Well, they might kind of wet the bed a little bit. after it. They liked it, the, and they were like going. My dad wets the bed. The <laughs> sophie girl goes. Does my dad get this? And yep, everyone's standing there going, "Our dad's wet the bed." And I was like, "Oh no, no, no!" So it's not that. It's um. Anyway, and, and then it was just absolute mayhem. him. And the next question was, "Do dogs? <laughs> do dogs get periods?" And I remember going. Good question. <laughs> yeah, great question. And I said. And for some reason, I didn't want to act like I didn't know this. And I said, uh, no, no, dogs don't get curious. That doesn't happen. And a girl said, I think my dog did. And I said, no, it probably cut itself. And she said, no, I went, no, no, Anyway, it was a most outrageous session. One of the girls wrote, what happens if you put your bra on upside down? Well, people know. And I'm going, I'm a 24-year-old male. Like I don't, this is, I can't believe this is what's happened to my life. I'm talking to this. But those moments of just like, I don't know, we're all working out together. And it's an important stage of your life. And I love school myself. So I don't know, there's something about being a primary school teacher, guiding young kids when you don't know the answers yourself totally. I mean, I still don't know the answers to lots of stuff, but letting them know that you don't know and you're still working it out. And, you know, I taught girls symmetry. This is how I taught them symmetry. One day, I got up and I had a pimple right in the middle of my head. Yeah. And symmetry wasn't meant to be until like couple measurement wasn't for a little while later or whatever that category that came under. And so, when we were doing maths, so I got a ruler out and I got the girls to measure the distance from the pimple from one eye to the other, and the other eye. And we worked out. And I said, So draw a line. So we drew a line from the pimple to my eyes, the outside of my eyes. And I said, Look at that's right in the middle. And I said, And that is symmetry. <laughs> and I'm positive, well, I'll be honest, I actually don't remember that. But one of the girls who I taught back in 2005 told me that story when she bumped into me the other day. She goes, Do you remember how you taught us symmetry? And I went, No. And she goes, Remember you had that pimple? And I went, Oh, yeah, I did too. And so I think I loved that. It was an opportunity to teach maths but also like an opportunity to teach people that like we're not perfect, like we all struggle, we all have things that are wrong with us and the more we're open about that and the more we're – I mean I didn't know the world was going to go through this perfectionist, crazy, ridiculous, perfectionist thing through Instagram and social media. But I hope the girls that I taught learned that it's okay to not be perfect and you're not going to look perfect all the time. And I love that you can model that it's okay to not be okay and to model – vulnerability and imperfection. And because I think those kids need that and they don't see enough of it.
1: Now, Hugh lived and taught primary school in a tiny town in rural India. There's no running water. He was sleeping on the floor. And yet he'd never met people so joyful, never in his life. He'd only planned to be there
0: for two weeks initially. We'd done our two weeks and and, uh, we're considering going home. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to miss this place. And in fact, on one of our la- what was meant to be one of our last nights, I couldn't sleep. And the reason was I was thinking about my sister, Georgia, because I was remembering when she was back. Now, my, my little sister, um, when she was 14 years old, she stops eating. She develops anorexia nervosa. Now, she's an incredible story of resilience and hope in herself, but back then she was really sick with anorexia. And in hospital when she's 18 years old or 17 or 18 years old, she's meant to be at school, but she's in hospital. She's dropped below crisis weight. So she was weighing in around... 31, 32 kilograms, uh, nothing of her. my memory of it is a bit like those, like a horror movie type um, mm. scenario, a bit like that. And fast forward a few weeks, she gets out of hospital, but then she didn't recover from it. She was still sick for a few years after that. And I remember lying on this dirt floor one night at the principal's house where I was sleeping, just thinking, how is this possible? My sister grew up in Australia, loving family, nice home, went to good schools, had everything she ever needed growing up in life. Yet, she's really finding it hard to be happy or like so many Australians, she finds it hard to be happy and to go one step further like so many Australians, she has a mental illness. Yet, these people, or this kid that I met in grade three have got so very little to call their own yet I feel like I've never seen joy like it and at that point, I remember thinking, do you know what? I don't think I want to go back to Australia. I think I want to live here and I think I want to live here as long as it takes me to work out. What is it that these people do every day that makes them so happy? Is there anything I can learn off them I could maybe talk to my little sister about? Um, and this happened 12 years ago. So that's pretty much how it played out as far as I remember. But I remember thinking that's – and so in the end, very long story short, I was there for three months in the end and I saw three things and I'm probably jumping ahead a bit in the conversation. Here, I, was just, sorry, I just get very excited about this part no, of the story. No, do it. Take, so. do,
1: you can go in any direction you like, mate. Okay, okay. It doesn't bother me at all.
0: In the three months, I saw three things that these people seem to stop their day and practiced every single day. And I'm a bit excited about those three things because I know they're three things that you have actually talked about in your podcast a lot. And so I know that you're going to be all over this stuff and probably a lot of your listeners will be as well. But it's just nice to hear other people doing it so well. But I saw three things I stopped their day and practiced every day. I joined in the three things that had a profound impact on me, but then I remember flying home back to Melbourne and I was thinking to myself, well, the fact that it had a profound impact on me, I don't know if that means a great deal because I've always, I don't know why, I've always been very lucky. I've always been a very happy person. So, the fact that I made a happy person a lot happier, I don't know if that means much. So, I went back to uni when I got back to Melbourne. I studied, I did my master's of education and all I did was really for that whole study was look at the research that sat behind these three things. What were the three things you saw these people doing? So the three things that I saw them practice every day were gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. And so I studied them at uni. I was like, well, is there research behind these things? What am I? I know I'm not the first person to discover this stuff. What's the research say? And I nearly fell off my chair when I read that there is at least 40 years of research screaming at us. And I love people to think about the current situation in the world, but there's 40 years of research screaming at us. If we want to feel happier, if we want to improve our mental health, if we want to help someone else or we want to help ourselves throughout a crisis, we've got to start practicing these three things, gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. And that got me very excited. And so I quit my teaching job and decided I was going to run around Australia and tell school kids these three things, very ambitious and very naive because it took... A long time to get busy and I sat around twiddling my thumbs for a lot and I was broke for quite a long time but I'm happy I did because we now get to spread the message to many many people about how you practice these three things what happens to you when you do which is really really nice so
1: as we discussed earlier in the conversation there's parts of our brains that are hardwired Past, I, was, I was speaking with my friend this morning that uh, we were talking about a horrible event that happened at the big day out in 2001 when a young lady died. And I remember the whole day getting this feeling going, something bad is coming. Really? Yeah. And my friend said to me, he said, oh, some people might call that a sixth sense, but I would say to you that that's, you know, 250 million years of evolution and that we subconsciously can recognize patterns of things that have happened before something has gone wrong. And we may not be present to it, but we're aware of it. And that so similarly, I would say that inside us, we're hardwired for gratitude. We're hardwired for empathy. We're hardwired for mindfulness. These are the things that create a electrical reactions in our brains that release certain amounts of hormones in our bodies that make us not feel, anxious, it makes our heart rate decrease, to make our breathing mm-hmm. go more yeah. steady. Uh, we're able to think clearer. We probably have better health outcomes over time and that our brains are kind of hardwired for this stuff and, and we somehow have distracted our way out of knowing this or being present to it. Can we break it down? When you were trawling through the library back then, I'm guessing you weren't on PubMed, um, but you were you know, actually having to pull weighty tomes out of a shelf. What does the science say about gratitude and empathy and mindfulness?
0: Well, I think the really important conversation to have around the science is also to look at what they actually are. So often when I hear people talk about it, it goes a bit over my head because they're people who are so much smarter than me. They don't quite get... The definition and then the attached science. So, I suppose gratitude for me, like I remember my first day in that school I was telling you about in Tiksa, the kids said to me, Sir, come and see the playground. And they took me out to the playground. They pointed over their shoulders at it. And it was a, um, if I could describe it, it was kind of like one swing was attached, but it was only on one part of the swing. So, it was just a straight line dangling down a chain. The other part, there was no swing attached, it was just two chains hanging down. And they pointed over and said, Have a look at this. And my first instinct was, I thought they were saying, Look how bad this is. All oh, I've got broken swings. But then I looked at their faces and I realized something. With big smiles on their faces, these kids are actually saying, hey, sir, check this out. And I realized what they were saying was how lucky are we, we've we got play equipment here. And that's what gratitude is for me. It's the ability to pay attention to what you've got, not to worry about what you don't have. And I feel like that's really relevant what we're going through right now in our lives because... There are so many things right now in the last couple of months that we can't do, places we can't be and people that we can't be with. And I think the more time we spend focusing on those things, the harder it is to be happy. Yet the more time we actually spend focusing on what we can still do, the people we still can see and the opportunities that are arising, the happier we're going to be. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
1: Hugh Van Coylenburg,
0: how can we improve on showing more empathy to other people? The things that people say via Twitter or Instagram comments or Facebook whatever, they're things that you would never, ever say to someone's face, ever. And I I worry about young kids growing up through that environment because one of the ways you learn empathy is you, you might, as a kid growing up, you might say something nasty to another kid and you see their response. You see it upsets them and you go, ooh. I don't want to make that person feel like that. And so you don't act like that. But now when it's over a screen and it pops up on their screen, you don't see their reaction. I don't think they're going to learn, you know, they're not going to see how much that's hurt that person. Anyway, that wasn't your question. No,
1: but don't, we can go down this road for a second. That's so important because there's one thing that you, that is also very important about when you're in, and you say something horrible to somebody else, inadvertently, let's say, give yep. the benefit of the doubt. Yep. And you see that person's face change, you feel horrible. Yeah. Inside your yeah. body, the yeah. need for acceptance, the need for the thing that got us to be a community that learned to live together and cooperate, that exists within us. Yeah. And it's important because it's the things that got us to survive. And that instantly, you're actually like, oh, shit, I have now somewhat ostracized myself from this person. I might not be able to get help from them in case I'm in trouble. I'm now one less ally uh, in case yeah. danger comes. Fuck. And you feel this, ooh, inside your body, and we can react to that with, if our ego, like me, jumps in the way, we go, whoa, and we can just then get angry or whatever, because we're (coughs) dealing with this icky feeling inside ourselves, and that's the other part that we don't get to put together when we write something horrible online, and it's gone to the sky. We never think about it again. We have no concept of, you know, we see a picture of someone, and we go, oh, you're a bit fat for that. And then yeah. off it goes. You don't see the hurt that it causes. No. Because so you don't learn. We, nor do we feel it inside our bodies, yeah. our own bodies, of how icky yeah. it feels to do that. And that's really tricky, that dehumanizing stuff. That's, the, that's really dangerous once we start to dehumanize each other and have no empathy. And, and look, to be honest, if, if we have grown up with a smartphone in front of our face, and let's be honest, the iPhone came along in 2007, so there's 13-year-olds who've never not known life without it. Mm. How might we be able to work on
0: empathy with kids of that age? It's a fascinating area in light of what you've just laid out for us. But for me, it's really just the ability to psychologically feel how someone else feels. And the reason that's important is the research tells us that the more empathetic you are, the more likely you are to act in a kind way. And so what I love about that is that the neuroscience is fascinating behind kindness because every single time you do something kind for someone else, your brain releases oxytocin and that makes you feel happy. And you are actually rewarded for being kind, which is the most remarkable thing. This kid who I spoke about, who I saw sitting in the grade three classroom in India, he is the kindest. I don't know where he learned this. He is the kindest person I've ever met in my entire life. Second day I walked into his classroom, I smashed my head on the doorway because I didn't realise it was only up to hit. Well. Not not a good example for, for a podcast, but it was only up to my forehead. The pimple zone. We
1: like to call it the pimple zone.
0: Yeah. the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I walked straight into the doorway, smashed my head, and, and um, the grade three sort of was hilarious. And I remember saying, guys, I've hurt my head hit. him. yes, it's very funny. But the next day I walked back to the classroom, and this little kid standing under the doorway with his arms folded, a big smile on his face, and he's looking up at the doorway. And I said, what are you laughing at? And he said, have a look. He'd found an old cloth or an old rag. I don't know where he'd found it, but he'd filled it with leaves and sand and he'd wrapped it all the way around the doorway to create padding for me just in case I smashed my head again. And I said, is it for me? And he said, yesterday was very bad. I said, yeah, it was. Thank you, my gosh. And then I was thinking, oh, maybe he's sucking up to the new teacher from Australia. Not what he was doing because I saw the next day we were playing cricket at lunchtime and he was batting. They used to use a whole lot of rubber bands as a ball, like yeah. all rolled up together, yeah. a stick from a branch. For, and he was batting and he looked over his shoulder. He saw a student four years above him sitting by themselves so he put the bat down and he walked over and sat with them and he was basically saying you're okay do you want to come and play with us you look lonely if someone wasn't at school because they're sick he'd swing past their mud hut after school just checking you're okay you weren't at school i was doing this talk end of last year to a group of neurosurgeons literally brain surgeons now that's an intimidating audience <laughs> and one of them um, put his hand up and he said to me if you want to understand why your little friend's so happy he said with what we know about the brain He said, I don't mind the gratitude stuff. I don't mind that. The mindfulness stuff you're going to have to convince me on. But he said, this empathy stuff with what we know about the brain, this is why he's so happy. And he continued. And he said, the powerful thing about your brain and empathy is your brain doesn't discriminate. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, if your little mate goes and does something kind for someone else, his brain releases oxytocin. That makes him feel happy. His brain doesn't say, oh, look, you sleep on a dirt floor and there's no electricity, no running water here. You don't get oxytocin. He said this before coronavirus. He said no matter what you are going through in life, no matter what challenges you are facing, if you do something nice to someone else, your brain rewards you with this hormone that makes you feel happy. He said, we always have access to joy and happiness and it comes through doing things for other people. He said, isn't that lovely? And it is so true.
1: Massive thanks to Hugh Van Quellenberg for joining us on the show. He's written two great books, the best-selling The Resilience Project and Let Go. It's time to let go of shame, expectation and our addiction to social media. Two books well worth reading. The full episode is Cracker, episode 351. Scroll back. It's about 2020 that we chatted. Thanks for being a part of it. I hope you have a great week and I hope, to, I hope you come and see us. We're doing gigs in Sydney. We're doing gigs in Melbourne. All the details are in the show notes. Uh, Factory Theatre in Sydney and then Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne and then hopefully Sydney Comedy Festival tickets on sale pretty soon. Thanks so much for Bree Steele for producing and writing this episode, Andy Ma for post-production, Rachel Barrett for executive producing, Toe Hider on the music, and you for listening. All right, see you Friday.